1: called a confession today is proverbs 29 verse 6 an evil man is ensnared in his transgression but a righteous man sings and rejoices clearly there are consequences of sin and these consequences multiply unless by god's grace we are brought up short and repent for example in the case of lies you've probably observed in yourself or someone else that telling one lie only leads to another a person then forgets that he's where he started the lie and who he told it to and where it's going to end. He finds himself in a vicious circle of lies from where there's no way out. Caught in the snare of his own sin, this person knows no peace, always running, always beat down. Figuratively, we are weighed down by sin and by by having it build up fast on our feet like we're walking in uh, fast-drying concrete. In contrast to being ensnared in sin, the last half of today's proverb says that a righteous man sings and rejoices. Now, biblical contentment or happiness is not stoicism. Also, we are not called to some kind of happy, happy, happy all the day kind of stuff. The Apostle Paul sets a pattern for us, providing us with this example. In 2 Corinthians, he says, he describes himself as, quote, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. His joy, his contentment, was not a perverse kind of denial or stiff-lipped Stoicism, and yet he says he was always rejoicing. This kind of contentment, whether you're well-fed or hungry, is a deep satisfaction with the will of God for you. This is bedrock stuff. Joy down to 20 feet. It's what we all need as foundations for our lives. May God grant us this peace and contentment as we confess our sins together. Please kneel where you are.
2: for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus and our salvation. Lord, I pray for our time here together this morning, that your spirit would be here in a powerful way, that you would touch our hearts and change our lives, that we might be salt and light in this world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So all of us uh, experience a kind of a a dissonance, a kind of a gap in our lives, Uh, the gap between What we expect life is going to be and life as we actually experience it to be. There's there's sort of what we think, think how things are supposed to go. As you go into anything, you go into an event, you go into a marriage, you go into a job. You have expectations of what that's going to be like. And almost always, it's something very different when you actually do it. It's something very different when you actually start the job. It's something very different when you get married. It's something very different when you have children. It's something very different between what we expect and what we experience. When I was 25, I moved uh, to New York City after having graduated with a music degree, and what I expected that to be and what I actually experienced were two very, very different things. Uh, I expected to find success. I expected to find fullness and life and friendship and whatever else good things that you might put along with that. Uh, But what I experienced was almost the opposite of that. I experienced um, alienation, loneliness, failure, uh, depression. And it it was a very difficult point. And and it got better. But the first nine to twelve months were very, very difficult of what I expected versus what I experienced. But about nine months of having lived there, my well, I say the, the woman that I had dated, she wasn't my wife yet, but the woman that I had dated as an undergraduate. Uh, had enrolled in the Army, and she was being stationed at West Point. Now, I thought West Point was in Washington, D.C., and my, I failed geography. I didn't know where it was. Uh, so when she called me to tell me that she was going to be at West Point, I said, that's very nice. I'm happy for you. Uh, but she said, well, you should come up and visit. And I said, well, first off, I think it's down, not up, and I don't know how I can get there. I don't have a car and things like that. She said, no, it's just 40 miles north. And so we, uh, we reconnected, And we're married about six months later. So what ended up happening was, it's like, okay, so I found this, I had total loss, basically, when I moved to New York City. Everything that I expected would happen by moving there and my success in my career came to nothing, basically. Uh, But that's okay, because I have this relationship that's going to come back in my life, and I'm going to find fullness there. So, you know, it's like I was moving to New York to find life, didn't find it. So I thought, that's okay, because now Carrie's going to move to New York. And I'm going to find life with her. But that experience was about the same as moving to New York. What I expected to happen by finding life in this relationship and marriage was not what I experienced. And I can't imagine being married to anyone else. I dearly love my wife. She's wonderful. But the first about 9 to 12 months of our marriage were incredibly difficult. And all the life and all the fullness I thought I was going to find in this marriage didn't happen. Didn't happen. And that's true of all of us, in that all of us, in one way or another, or what time or another, are striving in our lives in different ways and in different places to find life, to find fullness, to find whatever it is that we think that once we have that thing, and once we've accomplished that thing, we're going to experience happiness, and we're going to experience joy. This isn't a Christian thing. This is a human being thing. All the people that you know, all the people that you've seen, are all striving for this thing. Uh, The Christian thinker Thomas Merton calls it your personal salvation project. That all of us are on a personal salvation project. To strive to find life somewhere. To find life in something. And always finding that when we get there, we either don't find it or we perpetually find we never get there. But we're all on this project. And that project could be any number of things. For me, when I moved to New York, it was initially success in my career. That could be a project for people in here. That, Hey, my personal salvation project, if I find success and notoriety in my career, I'm going to find life then. Uh, it could be in relationship, as I did with my wife. You know, you think, well, once I'm married, or once my marriage is working, or once I, you know, let's say you like a girl or a boy. If you're younger, well, once I get them to like me, I'll, have, I'll be happy then. You could find it in your family, With your children, okay, I'll find fullness in my children and their success. You could find it uh, in your possessions. Once I have a certain size house or once my house looks a certain way and I get the roof done the way I want it and my kitchen redone and my bathroom's redone, then I'm going to feel, then everything's going to be fine once that happens. Or once you get to a certain amount in your bank account. Well, I know that once I get to this amount, I'm going to be okay once I get to that amount. But up until then, you're, you're striving and everything's about making that thing happen. So the question this morning for you is, what is that for you? What is that for you? Everybody's going to have a different sort of bent. Maybe you be more towards your family and your kids. Maybe there's something, many, many things that I didn't mention. And what we want to do is contrast that this morning with what is God's salvation project. We have our own personal salvation project, but over and against that is God's salvation project. And what we want to do this morning is See, what is it that your personal salvation project might be? And then, what is God's salvation project? Which project are you on, basically? And how can you know? Because there are many people who are deceived, who think, well, no, I'm on God's salvation project. But when you really look at it, you end up really being on your own. Which is why, you know, places like Matthew 7, other places, there's this sense where people think they're right with Jesus, and then Jesus says, I don't know you. So how do we know we're on God's salvation project? And what we're going to do is look at that in light of our text by asking three questions of our text, right? Good Reformed sermons have three points. We have three questions. First off, the question is what is the metaphor? What is Jesus getting at by salt and light? What does he mean? The second thing is what is the mistake that we make? Because Jesus seems to say that we, a salt can lose its saltiness and your light can be put under a bowl. So there's something that we do that can make us ineffective. So what's the metaphor? What's the mistake? And lastly, what is the mission? What is the mission of God's salvation project and how do we know that we're on it? So those are our three things. The metaphor, the mistake, and the mission. So the first is the metaphor. What is Jesus getting at by talking about salt and light? Now the first he talks about is salt. When I've heard sermons, and I'm sure everyone here has heard us, probably at some point in your life, someone give a sermon on this. I've heard two different interpretations of what Jesus means by salt. One is that salt is a flavor enhancer. You put salt on your soup, you put salt on your food, so that you can bring out the flavors of your food. Uh, soups, things like that. Um, and that says the Christian kind of acts as a in the world to bring out the good things of the world. You know, So if you're out there and... Um, uh, in, in life, you know, you the Christian kind of brings forward the blessings, brings forward the good things, brings forward those kind of things to enhance God's goodness in the world, basically, by being that kind of an agent. The second one, and probably the more predominant thing I've heard, and probably yourself, is that salt is a preservative, and that Christians act as a preservation agent in culture. In other words, culture is on a natural slant and of, towards decay and sinfulness, and that the Christian in the world acts as uh, a way to stave that off. You know, if, so if we're all kind of on this natural slant towards sin and decay, the Christian acts as kind of a bulwark, a wall, to keep that from happening uh, in the world around us. And I think those, both of those things are true. I think the Christian does both of those things. A Christian does bring out the good around them, and the Christian does act as a way in culture to stave off decay and sinfulness. I just don't think that's what Jesus means here. To see what he means, or at least what I'm suggesting that he means, we need to look at another place where Jesus says a little bit more. All he says in Matthew is that you're the salt of the earth, and that's all he says. But in Luke, he says a little more. Luke records more of what Jesus says. In Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, Luke expounds a little bit more about what Jesus says. He says, Jesus, Luke 14, he says that salt is good... But if it loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? Okay, that's basically what we have in Matthew. But he extends it out and he says, It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile it is thrown out. Now why is Jesus saying that the salt is not good for the soil? The reason why is because at that, in that part of the world, then and now, salt is used as a fertilizer for soil. Now, it's a certain kind of assault, salt, because salt can also be used to destroy soil. You know, for instance, when Carthage was taken over, uh, where they salted all the soil to keep it from growing. But there's a certain type of assault salt that is put into the soil to give nutrients to the soil as used as a fertilizer. Which is why he says, if you lose your saltiness, you're no longer fit for the soil. So what Jesus is saying is that the Christian is who he places into barren soil to provide nutrients so that life will come up from where there was once barrenness. You think about, you know, when you have soil that won't produce crops, you put fertilizer into the soil so that when you plant the seeds, the seeds will come up and produce a crop. And what Jesus is saying is Christians are who he places into the soil. He's the salt that provides the nutrients to the barren soil to produce life. That's sort of a different kind of a metaphor than just bringing out the goodness or preservation. That this Christian is a fertilizer into barrenness. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you into barren places that you will produce life. The second thing that Jesus talks about is light. And what I'm suggesting is that Jesus is saying the same things two different ways. Same thing two different ways. Jesus is a good teacher. That's what good teachers do. They say the same thing multiple ways. Because light in the Bible is used consistently, consistently as a metaphor for newness of life. You think back to Genesis 1, you know, there's the darkness, and God says, let there be light. And from all that light comes all the life of creation. We also see this in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5. It says, when anything is exposed, verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it is said, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you Light. This idea of metaphor of resurrection coming alive... ...coupled with the metaphor of light. Because light is a metaphor for newness of life. Second Corinthians 4.6 says the same thing. It says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness... ...made his light shine in our hearts... ...to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory... ...displayed in the face of Christ. It's the same metaphor. That light is a metaphor for life. So what Jesus is saying, just to put this together... ...is that the Christian, the follower of Jesus is where God, who God puts into barren soil or to barrenness to bring forth life and God is, sends the Christian into places of darkness in order to bring forth light. I'm going to place you in barren places to bring forth life because I push you in the soil and I send you into dark places to bring forth light and both of them bring forth life. So that's the metaphor. We got that? Are you with me on that? The metaphor of what he's saying? Again, the same thing, two different ways. The second thing is the mistake. Because Jesus says that we can lose our saltiness and that we can have our light put under a bowl. Now, what I'll suggest is is that we make the mistake when we refuse to put down our personal salvation projects. When there are those things in our lives that we are seeking to find life from. When we continue to seek life from those things. Instead of seeking our life from the only true source of it, which is Jesus himself. Then we are the salt that becomes, not salty, it loses its properties of salt, and we become the light that's placed under a bowl. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who says things usually better than other people do because he's C.S. Lewis, uh, in Mere Christianity says this. It's kind of a lengthy quotation, but he says it very, very well. I mean, it's in Mere Christianity. He says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, right, think about Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up or invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God and apart from God, which is related to, actually to the Heidelberg Catechism reading we read, read question number one this morning. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something, anything, other than God, which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this, God has made us. God has invented us, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us happiness in a piece apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That as long as we are on our personal salvation project, seeking to find life in something other than God, it's like filling your gas tank with sugar, anything else other than gasoline. The, the car won't run. And we were made to live on and find our life in God, and as long as we seek to find it anyplace else, it won't work. So that we said, well, why is it that we make this mistake? So the mistake is we don't put down our personal salvation project. Why don't we do that? Why? I'm gonna only suggest three reasons why. There are only three people you might have much better reasons than mine. They're just a couple thoughts. One reason why we don't put this down is because of the world around us. The world and culture around us. A culture is striving, they're striving for you to find life in something else. In something else. In fact, a lot of our, the way our world runs is on a system of finding life someplace else. If you weren't finding life someplace else, there's a lot of things that wouldn't work. Uh, there was a, um, a commercial from the 2013 Super Bowl that was, a, it was an ad for Volkswagen. It could be a many mini ad. This is advertising. I mean, advertising are basically the prophetic voices of the culture. If anybody's in advertising, no offense, but it's just, that's kind of true, I think. So this, this particular ad was for Volkswagen and um, the, the title of the ad was Get In, Get Happy. That was sort of the catch line for Volkswagen. And the ad was this office, and everybody in the office was miserable. Nobody was happy. Everything was down. Like, their stocks were down, their families were falling. Everything was horrible for every person in this office except for one person who everything was great. Everything was shining and happy, and life was great. And when they asked, you know, what's the secret to your fullness of life? The answer was... Come down to the parking lot and you'll see. And then when they get down to the parking lot, they all get into his Volkswagen and everybody's happy because the secret to happiness is owning a Volkswagen. And that is completely stupid. That's a stupid (laughs) thing. But... People in our culture, I mean, as stupid as we make it sound, really believe that. They really believe when I buy that thing, I'm going to be happy. When I get this relationship, I'm going to be happy. When I get this job, if I get this salary amount, I'm going to be happy. We believe it. You believe it. I believe it, too, if we're not careful. There's a, a saying out in Los Angeles just recently because Amazon has this thing now where you can have uh, packages delivered by drones. And so um, that the slogan in L.A. is happiness is only one hour away. If you want to be happy, just click something and you'll be happy in an hour. That's what our culture wants us to believe. And we have a tendency, if we're not careful, if we're not prayerful, to believe it too. So one is the world around us. The second are other people. Other people. People can appear and present a facade as if they have found it, like they have it. Although underneath, that's not the case. Underneath, it's not the case. In fact, the better you know, so that when you first meet somebody, this is what you generally see, is the projection of who they are, not who they really are, the projection. And then once you really get to know them, you hear about all the things that are screwed up in their life. Because we all have things that are screwed up in our life, no matter who we are. Whether in our family, relationships, there's always something. And wh- one of the main places where you see this at work is on social media. If you go onto Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or things like that, you are not really, I mean, I'm not saying everybody in this room, but generally... You are not seeing the actual person. You are seeing the projection of who that person wants you to believe that they are. And so what you see are pictures of everybody happy. You see pictures of everything going well. You see pictures of them having fullness. Everything that they list are good things. You know, my husband has got the new job. We're happy. We have a new baby. Everything's great. You see this on vacations. Everyone's on vacation. Everybody's smiling. I can tell you this. If you're going on vacation with your kids, you're not smiling. All the time, at least, right? You're having a good time, I'm sure, but they show the picture of everybody looking happy. They don't show the picture 30 minutes later of two of them tantruming, and the other one's here, it's hot, and you you can't make everybody happy, right? But because we see this projection, that's what we think is really true, and we begin to believe it. Oh, if only we had a house like they do, look how happy they are in that house. And then you look at your own house, you think, boy, my house isn't near like theirs. They look really happy. If only I could have that, I'd be happy like them. Or, look how they went to that great restaurant. There's a picture of my wife and I, uh, when we were dating a, in a restaurant, and we're smiling. And I could put that picture, we didn't have Instagram back then, but if I put it up there, and everyone would like it and say, look how happy they are. But what you don't know is that was probably the worst date I've ever been on. It was a horrible date. We fought like crazy. It was no fun. And But all we have left of it is this picture of us smiling. So... The point is, is that other people around you may make it seem like they found life outside of God. It's a lie, and it tempts us to think we can find life like they seem like they have, when they haven't. The last thing, so we have the world around us, we have other people. The last thing that we can make this mistake is our own hearts. Deep inside of us, the things that we try to find life in, the things that are our own personal salvation project, are good things, usually. Almost always they're good things. Your family is a great thing. But when you try to draw life from your family, it becomes an idol. It becomes your personal salvation project. And it actually becomes something that destroys you rather than gives you life. It's like your, uh, your job is a good thing. You know, being able to earn money and provide is a good thing. But when they become what you draw life from, then they become your personal salvation project. And as long as you live that out, you're not going to be effective. You're not going to be salt and light. So, that's, so first we have the metaphor, then the mistake. The metaphor of salt and light as we go into barren places, we go into dark places to bring forth life. The mistake that we make is we don't put down our personal salvation project as we strive to find life someplace else other than God. So lastly, what is the mission? Mission. The mission is to go into those places of barrenness and darkness finding your life in god in order to bring the god to those places to kind of contrast that with what it means to have a personal salvation project when you have a personal salvation project you're stri- you're striving to draw life from those things you're drawing life from your marriage from your job from something from this church from anything when you're on god's mission you are drawing your life from jesus and you're bringing life to those places it's the opposite and when you think about your marriage, or think about your children, or children, or think about your parents, or whatever, when you are, when you are drawing life from them, that's your personal salvation project. The mission of God is not to draw life from them. The, per- the mission of God is to give life to them. Because you don't need them for life. You only need God for life. You don't need them. You shouldn't need them. You only need God. And when that is true... When you are drawing your life from God, then you are freed up in a really true sense to truly love your wife, to truly love your children, because it's not conditional anymore. You don't need them for life. You are simply giving it to them. You don't need your job to give you life. You bring the life of God to your job. You don't need the life of God to give life to your family. You bring it to them. That's the mission of God. Which is why in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, that when your light shines, they see your good deeds. They see your good deeds. And they glorify God in heaven. You know, oftentimes as Protestants, I mean, I'm a Protestant too. And we have the, what, the 500th anniversary of Reformation this year? Martin Luther? That's coming in a couple months, October 31st or whatever day that is. We have, and, I, and rightly so, we have become so concerned, that we are, and this is not a bad thing because it's true, that we are saved apart from works. And are we saved apart from works? Yes, we love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? You know, it's a, faith is a gift from God that none would boast. But we need to remember Ephesians two ten. It says that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works that he had ordained ahead of time that you would walk in them. So when we live out this God salvation project, we draw life from God and we give it to others and that will inevitably be lived out before them. You will do things. You will live. You will do works because your life, it doesn't earn your salvation, but it's how you live as salt and light in the world. It's not simply believing something but not acting it out. There are far too many Christians that, quote, believe the right thing, but you would never know. You would never know it by the way they live. They live just like everybody else. They spend money just like everybody else. Their priorities just like everybody else. Their house, everything is the same. They buy, Everything's the same. Except they believe something different. And what I would challenge is, I'm not really sure they really, really believe it. If you really believed it, it would be different. You would look different. That's what Jesus is saying. If you look just like everybody else, if you're like everybody else on your personal salvation project, you, you will look like everyone else. When you draw life from God and you give life to others, you life will look different. I'm telling you, it will look different. I'm gonna leave uh, one more passage of scripture, then we'll tell the story and we'll close. The passage of scripture is what I think. It's my guess, right? Who am I to say I know the mind of God? But I think Jesus was thinking about a particular passage when he said this, which is Isaiah fifty-eight, verses six through seven. It's just a guess. Now, Isaiah 58 is talking about fasting. And God is talking about what kind of fast that he desires from his people. And he says this, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? These are things that we're doing. These are showing the love of God, who is on behalf of the poor and broken hearted. When you see them naked, you clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And then Jesus says this, or God says this in Isaiah. When you do those things, then your light, your light, will break forth like the dawn. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. When we act and when we show the love of God to the world around us, just as it says here in Isaiah, our light shines. And just as the world around us is like it's in the middle of the night, it's dark. The day dawns when Christ lives out through our lives as we bring life to the world around us. One quick story, then we'll close. It's the story of Lee and Leslie Strobel. Anyone know Lee Strobel? He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. I uh, also had The Case for Christmas and The Case for the Resurrection and The Case I took to the airport. I had a lot of cases that he took. Now, Lee Strobel, he's a gift from God to the church. He's a good man. Now, when Lee Strobel was not born a Christian. Lee Strobel was initially uh, an atheist. When he graduated from high school, his father told him, I don't have enough love for you to fill my pinky finger. It's a devastating thing to hear from a father to a son. I don't have enough love for you to fill my pinky finger. And so because he had that sense of loss from his family, he threw himself into his job. Think about his personal salvation project, right? He's going to find sense. He's not going to find fulfillment in his life and his family. So he's going to find fullness in his job. And he becomes a successful uh, journalist. And through that, he marries his wife. His name is Leslie. Neither one of them are Christians, uh, but they get married. They have a child, and they move into a condominium complex. And the point of this story is to show how easy it is, not how easy, but how effective you can be at salt and light right where you live. You don't have to go to Africa to be salt and light, but if you want to go to Africa, that'd be great. So they move into a condominium complex. Uh, They have a young daughter, I think. Now, someone else, I I don't even know who, uh, someone else in the condominium complex comes, knocks on the door and brings over a plate of cookies. She has a a child about the same age as, as Leslie and Lee's child. Brings over a plate of cookies. That's it. Leslie invites her in. And they start a conversation. They begin to form a friendship. And this friend of Leslie's is salt in Leslie's barrenness. I mean, think about it. Leslie, the people around you that are lost are barren. They're barren. The people around you that are lost are dark. And this friend becomes salt to Leslie's barrenness. And this friend becomes light to Leslie's darkness. Just by bringing over a plate of cookies, at least initially, And through that, and through the Holy Spirit, of course, all life comes through the Holy Spirit. Leslie gives her life to Christ. Now, when that happens, Lee is not too happy about it. Lee is not just sort of, I don't really care about God. Lee is saying, I don't believe in God. I think, Leslie, you made a mistake, and I'm going to prove it to you. Because he's a kind of investigative journalist, he goes on a crusade, in, in a sense, to disprove Christianity, to prove to his wife that she'd made a mistake. Now, through that... Imagine if you're Leslie now. If, if if you're Leslie, and your husband is trying to prove to you that your newfound faith is wrong, and who knows what those conversations were like. I'm sure they weren't all, like, happy lovey. I'm sure there was a lot of, perhaps, uncomfortable conversations. Leslie, because she's now drawing her life from Christ, is not drawing her life from Lee, her husband. And she gives life to her husband. She's not drawing life. She's giving it. And so Leslie becomes salt in Lee's barrenness, Leslie becomes light in Lee's darkness. And over time, as the Holy Spirit works through his investigative journalism, right, which is an interesting story where his books kind of, kind of flow from, and because of the love of his wife and the transformation that comes to her life, Lee gives his life to Christ. So you don't have to... I don't know. Sometimes we think if we're going to be salt and light, we have to do something like we've you know, we got to like move to Uganda or something. Now, again, if God's calling you to Uganda, you should go. But we don't have to do that. It, your, your barrenness, think about the places in your life that are barren and dark. Those are places perhaps in your job. Some people work in some pretty barren and dark places at work. Think about relationships that you have that are in your family. Those can be some pretty barren and dark places there. It could be barrenness and darkness at a particular place where you shop or a particular place where you live, the block that you live on. The, the thing is, God is saying, don't withdraw. Don't pull away from darkness. Don't pull out of barrenness. As Christians, sometimes we think, okay, I've got to pull out of that. God is saying, I'm placing you into it. I want you to be in the barren places. I want you to be in the darkness. But I don't want you there to try to draw life from it. I want you to be there to give life to it. And as long as we focus our eyes upon God... Then we can be freed up to put down our personal salvation project. We stop living, drawing life from around us, and then we can be freed up to give life to the barren places and life to the dark places. So, the question again what is your personal salvation project? What are you tempted to? And how can you begin to be on God's salvation project? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Jesus, who was on your salvation project. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, first off, Lord, would you illumine to our hearts? Would you illumine to mine? What is my personal salvation project? What am I seeking to find life from? And help me to repent of that, to give that to you, and to turn and to find life only in you. Help me to not turn away from darkness and turn away from barrenness, but to seek to be in it that I might bring life and that we all might do that. That we all might seek to be in barren and dark places to bring the light of Christ. We thank you as we can do it only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in his name.
3: Nevertheless I am continually with you. In the preceding verses he confesses his foolishness and ignorance before God. He is fully conscious of his sin and in the vileness of his nature, and yet in a glorious outburst of faith he declares, nevertheless I am continually with you. Dear saints, this declaration is for you to affirm as well. Since you belong to Christ, you are continually with God. You are continually upon his mind. He is always thinking of you for your good. You are continually before his eye. He is perpetually watching over your welfare. You are continually in his hand. No one and no thing will ever be able to pluck you from it. You are continually on his heart, and his love is ever yearning toward you. You are continually with God. And this meal, your participation in it, your partaking and receiving of it, is affirmation that you belong to Christ. He is in you, and you are in him. God sees you as robed in Jesus' righteousness and washed in his blood, and therefore you stand accepted in his presence. So come to the Lord's Supper and be comforted. Your soul may be tried and afflicted in the battle against sin, but partake and declare in your heart, nevertheless, I am continually with God. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.